This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. And as a special one-time offer, the Jerusalem Portfolio will add $50 to the accounts of the first 10 Israel Story listeners who sign up. That's $50 free dollars to invest. Use promo code ISRAELSTORY when signing up. This episode is also sponsored by Barbara Siegel's Loving Family, in honor of her very special birthday. Barbara has always had a strong connection to Israel, and she supports our podcast's goal of telling true stories of Israel, Israelis, and Israeliut. Barbara's husband Howard, her children and their spouses Jacqueline, Daniel, Douglas, Margot, and Alex would like to honor her, celebrate her, and send their love and best wishes. So from all of us here at Israel Story, a big and heartfelt mazal tov, Barbara. Okay, and now to our episode. Last year, while working on a piece about the song Yerushalayim Shel Zahav for our mixtape series, I went to interview Shuli Natan, the singer who originally sang it back in 1967. When I showed up at her house in Ra'anana, I discovered that a friend of hers, a heavy-set, white-haired gentleman, was randomly joining us for the interview. After we were done, he walked me to the door. Call me, he said. I have a story for you. A few months later, we met up. My name is Menachem Abi Levy. I was born in April 1945, right at the end of World War II. My parents were Holocaust survivors. My dad from Italy, mom from Germany. Both of them escaped the Nazis' clutch in the very last minute, in 1939. They came to this land, settled in the Beit She'an Valley, and established a kibbutz, Sde Eliyahu. A.B. told me a long, complicated tale about a woman he first met, more than half a century earlier, at the Western Wall. He then asked for help. He'd been looking for her for years, private eyes and all, but he simply couldn't find her anywhere. It was urgent, he said. He was almost 75 and filled with both curiosity and nostalgia. I promised A.B. we'd do our best. If you find her, Please, please, please let me know and connect us. I just have to see this woman once more. (laughs) 
Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and welcome to the start of Israel Story's fourth season. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. It's been a while. We've missed you very much. Hopefully you've missed us a bit too. And now, here we are. Delighted to be back on air, and ready to jump headfirst into the exciting season we have ahead of us. A lot has happened in the world and in our little country since we finished our last season with that mixtape miniseries. There were elections in Israel and, well, there are about to be elections once again. My favorite author, Amos Oz, a man I and many others considered to be a modern-day Israeli prophet, passed away. And we came within a few seconds of successfully landing a spacecraft on the moon. We seem to have a problem with our main engine. Well, we didn't make it, but we definitely tried. I think we can be proud. Throughout it all, however, if there's one word that's been with us day and night for the past year, it is, of course, the wall. Has anyone ever heard about the wall? We have to start by building a wall, a big, beautiful, powerful wall. Everybody wants the wall. We'll have the wall. Build that 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 wall. Walls, it seems, are back in style. And it's not just Trump in America or Bibi here. It's preoccupying our minds, too. So welcome, Israel Story listeners, to The Wall, our season-opening miniseries. Around the world, from China to Berlin, from England to Peru, walls crisscross our planet. Over the centuries, we've called them by different names— Fences, barriers, borders, curtains. We've made them out of stone and metal, concrete and barbed wire, iron and brick. And taken together, they're reminders of their times. Times in which people felt unsafe, or in need of protection. Bygone eras when fortification or expansion pushed certain groups out and let others in. And while walls are sturdy, real-world obstacles— Their greatest power comes from within. They are, more than anything, a state of mind. A physical manifestation of a desire to divide, to defend, to safeguard a culture. Walls, someone once wrote in an article I read, aren't only built for security. They're built for a sense of security. They protect us not only from barbarians, but also from anxieties and fears, which are often even more terrifying. When you build a home, the very first thing you do after laying the foundation is put up walls. And that's exactly what happened in 1948, when Israel started building its national home. Over the last seven decades, we've renovated. We've expanded the perimeter wall, fought about it with the neighbors, demolished walls, built new ones. There are all kinds of walls in Israel today, and no, not just the separation wall. Over the next few episodes, we'll visit some of the country's most famous walls. We'll ask them questions, listen to them whisper their stories, tell us their pasts, and predict their futures. The entire series, which is based on our newest live show, will feature the original music of our wonderful Israel Story Band. 
דותן מושונוב, ארי ונג, עדן ג'אמשיד, רוני וגנר שמט, ורות דנון. Our episode today, Operation Chulda. It takes us to a wall that generations of Jews around the globe, from Pshemeshul to Perth, from Sana'a to San Francisco, have yearned to see and touch. The Kotel, the wailing Western Wall. A.B. Levy, the gentleman we heard at the top of the show, was 22 years old in the late spring of 1967. He had recently gotten out of the army, where he served as an officer, and was now back on his kibbutz, a religious kibbutz, working the land. I was born between the flower beds. Yes, because my parents were farmers who toiled away in the fields from dawn to dusk. He was married, and his wife, Ilana, was eight months pregnant. And the fruit of her womb was about to come out. <laughs> That's when he was called up to reserve duty, for what would soon be known as the Six-Day War. Can you imagine what it's like when you go to war? No one knows what will happen. And what happened stayed with him for the rest of his life. On the morning of June 7th, 1967, Abi's battalion of paratroopers entered Jerusalem's old city and captured the Temple Mount. Jordanian snipers were shooting at us, and you had to be very careful, quickly run through open spaces. And I recognized the Iron Gate that led down to Shkunat HaMugrabim and the Western Wall. The soldiers stormed through the gate and reached the surprisingly undefended Western Wall. Now, at the time, the Kotel didn't look anything like it does today. There was no Grand Plaza, but rather a densely populated and relatively poor Palestinian neighborhood called Shkunat HaMugrabim. Shkunat Oni Oni Marud. A crowded slum, Abi remembers. Kind of a Palestinian favela. Houses right next to another, doors right next to another. That's Danny Persky, the battalion's medic. No sanitation whatsoever. Only a narrow alleyway separated the houses of Shkunat Mugrabim and the Kotel. You look today at, at the Kotel, you see this, this huge thing. At the time it was a small little alley, not even a street. Yeah, a tiny little alley, and it was totally empty. There wasn't a single soul to be seen. The soldiers sat down. The quietness and the cool shade, they gave us this sense of rest, of peacefulness. There was a calm atmosphere. And I allowed my soldiers to lay down for a minute and rest. Everyone leaned back on the stones of the Kotel. It was a moment of sober joy, of contemplation. Each man alone with his thoughts. All in some sort of a daze. You're just spent. Either dead, tired, or... 
just emotionally exhausted from everything we'd been through and seen during the night. It was the third day of the war, which meant that they hadn't really slept in the last 72 hours. It was also June, so it was pretty hot. And the previous night they had fought at Ammunition Hill, in a bloody battle which claimed the lives of 36 of their friends. People saw and experienced so much in that night that it never leaves you. But more than anything, finding themselves there, in that alley, at that moment, was completely surreal. Just a few days earlier, everyone was sure that Hussein, the young Jordanian king, would stay out of the war, and there'd be no fighting in Jerusalem. And now, here they were, touching the stones of the Kotel. Suddenly, you know, it hits you, hey, this is the Wailing Wall. Even for a staunchly secular man like Danny, it was hard to fathom. I was very, very excited. Nothing to do with religion. I mean, you, you, you go born in Kirat Chaim. I mean, <laughs> the, the last time I went to Bet Knesset to Shul is when I had my bar mitzvah. That's it. Still, even he felt a sense of spiritual uplifting. You standing there in front of those magnificent walls, and then you think of the history of Israel from first temple, second temple, and whatever. And here we are, Israeli soldiers in the old city of Jerusalem, liberating the city. I looked at that, that huge wall. I was so proud that, that we are actually there. And then we started to understand we liberated Jerusalem. And now Jews from around the world can come and leave a note and cry and pray. At that very moment, a high-pitched cry pierced the almost sacred silence. Suddenly, we heard the children screaming, and they came closer to us. It was two little kids yelling at the top of their lungs, Doctor! 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 I saw these poor children, and I thought, I must see if the doctor is around. A.B. quickly found the battalion's doctor, Uri Frant. Together they rushed back and got Danny, the medic. The doctor looked at me and said, Danny, come on, let's go. They ran after the two toddlers, who were leading them into the bowels of the Palestinian neighborhood. Were you afraid that this might be dangerous to follow these kids into Shkonat Mugrabim? Look, there were still snipers in the streets. Um, but we were cautious as we went through those small streets, small alleys. Finally, they arrived at a house. And there, on the floor, they saw a local Palestinian woman screaming in agony. The doctor knelt down beside her, examined her, and of course, immediately understood that she was in labor. Though she was only seven months pregnant, they were told, she was in the middle of giving birth. 
Um, I think I've already seen the head of the baby coming out. Not quite, quite sure, but she was bleeding very heavily. And Uri said to me, A.B., make sure we have some clean water here. A.B. dashed back to the Kotel and quickly returned with fresh water from the canteens of his fellow soldiers. They just washed her and then, look, it was very dirty. It's not hygienic like a hospital scenario. And I was standing guard and I thought to myself, what a world this is. What a world. We are now treating the enemy. What can I say? And of course, you're excited, but, but you're also nervous and alert. You need to make sure that, God forbid, someone doesn't come in and start shooting or throw a grenade into the room. As A.B.'s thoughts drifted, no doubt, to his own pregnant wife, back home on the kibbutz, the birth was in full swing. At that stage, the baby started to come out, and it was a, a girl. I remember that Uri lifted her up with her legs, and she started to cry, of course, which is the good sign you know, she's alive. I remember that he was saying that once the, the child appeared, uh, there was like uh, light in the room. That's Yaakov, Uri Franz's son. Suddenly, in all this death, and the sound of the, the, the shooting that was for almost two days before it, it was like happiness. And then he cut the umbilical cord and uh, wrapped the baby in towel or something like this and gave it to the mother. Before they left behind the world of life and rejoined the world of war and death, Uri had one last piece of advice though not strictly medical advice for the new mother. Daddy suggested to call the girl Jomila, which is beautiful in Arab. Beautiful. He also said that, God willing, he'd come back and check on her once the fighting was over. And with that, the paratroopers turned around and ran back to the Kotel. That's it. Quick in, quick out. And that's all that I remember of it. The story was one of many tales of bravery and courage during the war. But with time it became almost mythical. Have you heard how Israeli paratroopers helped a Palestinian woman give birth? People would say with an admiring twinkle in their eye. It is not about being enemies. It's about being human beings. A human being needs help. So you help. This is where we could have ended the story. It's an inspiring one, after all. It speaks to our shared humanity and to the fact that even mid-war, long before we are Jews and Arabs, long before we live on this side of the wall or the other, we're just people, neighbors. And for a while, this was indeed where the story ended. But then, well, then it took on a new life. Four and a half years after the end of the Six-Day War, in January 1972, 
A Ma'ariv journalist by the name of Mordechai Khan was wrapping up a day of reporting in Jaffa. As he walked back to his car, he saw a group of people huddled together. Curious, he went over to see what the fuss was all about. This is Mordechai recounting that moment years later in a home video. That's when I came across something that really surprised me. I heard a conversation in Arabic in a Hungarian accent. I said to myself, there must be a story here. I stuck around, and it became the greatest story of my life. Mordechai passed away in 2015. But his widow Ruti vividly remembers his glowing face when he came home late that night. He had met a mysterious green-eyed woman, he told her. He said hello to her. Hi, I'm Mordechai Elkan, I work for Mariv. And then she told him her entire life story. Would you like me to tell you her story? Absolutely, I said. Judith Schwartz, that's the woman Mordechai met on the street in Jaffa, was born to secular Jewish parents in Budapest in 1927. Her father, Gabor, died when she was a year old, but that was just the start of her rough childhood. She and her three older brothers were sent to the Rosenbergs, a religious foster family who lived in a town about 90 miles away. They lived with them for eight years before returning to Budapest to their mother. When they came back, they discovered that she had remarried. Her new husband, a local non-Jewish Hungarian, wasn't, you can imagine, too happy about the reappearance of the four children. He kicked them out of the house, and Judith and her brothers spent several years trying to survive on their own. At times, friendly folks took them in. More often, they slept in shelters or on the street. The worst, however, was still to come. In March 1944, the Nazis invaded Hungary. Later that year, Judith was deported to Auschwitz. But she was lucky, and managed to survive, a day at a time, till the Red Army arrived in late January 1945 and liberated the camp. Free at last, she made her way back to Budapest. That's where she discovered that she was the only member of her family to make it out alive. Once more, she found herself displaced. In July 1946, Youth Aliyah, a Zionist organization that helped rescue Jews from Europe, offered Judith a fresh start. In Bakar, Yugoslavia, she and close to 3,000 others boarded a converted Canadian Navy battleship, rechristened the Haganah, and set off for the land of Israel. This was, of course, a risky endeavor, part of the illegal immigration of Jews to Mandate Palestine, also known as the Ha'apala. And as a matter of fact, the British seized the ship, dragged it to the Haifa port, and detained all the refugees in Atlit. Ultimately, Yudit ended up on Kibbutz Afikim, near the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. After a solitary year there, she moved, by herself, to Jerusalem. She was utterly alone in this world. 
No family, no friends. She didn't even speak the language. So companionship, any companionship, must have been much welcomed. Shortly after she arrived in Jerusalem, Yudit befriended a local Arab, Abu Aliyah, from the old city. He invited her over. They spent time together. This is where the story gets a bit murky. Some, like Ruti, the journalist's widow, believe that he kidnapped her. He forced her into staying with him, forced her to marry him, and made her convert to Islam. Other people told me, once I put the mic away, that she moved in with him willingly. Either way, that's when the War of Independence broke out. Arriving in New York on the Queen Mary is Dr. Ralph Bunch, acting United Nations mediator in Palestine. He reports on the successfully concluded armistices that have ended armed conflict between Israel and the Arab states. And when those armistice agreements were signed, and the new international borders were drawn, Judith Schwartz found herself in the old city, now part of Jordan, living as a Muslim woman. Her name was changed to Laila Natasha. Laila Natasha. Life, needless to say, wasn't simple for Yudit slash Laila, the Auschwitz survivor turned traditional Palestinian wife. Her marriage was extremely difficult. Her husband would lock her in the house because he was afraid she would either escape back to the Jews or else the local Arabs would think she's a spy and hurt her. They had two daughters. But then, in 1957, Abu Aliyah, the husband, had had enough of his unhappy wife and left her. He took their girls, Aisha and Samira, with him to Amman. Once again, Yudit was on her own, devastated. Some good-hearted neighbors in the old city took pity on her. Look, they said. There's a nice young man from Hebron, Ali, who's looking for a wife. Yudit agreed and a shiduch was arranged. Ali and Laila moved into a shack in Shkunat Amugrabim. Life was far from glamorous. They lived, according to Ruti, in subhuman conditions, in a pathetic little hut. But after all her trials and tribulations, at least she was loved. And Ali, everyone agrees, was a good and honest man. She had a good marriage with him. Having had her two daughters torn away from her, she started a new family. In 1962 she gave birth to a girl, and three years later to a baby boy. We've already met these two little kids. Suddenly, we heard the children screaming, Doctor! 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 Abi, Uri, and Danny had no idea, of course, that the Palestinian woman whose baby they had helped deliver was actually Judith Schwartz, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. When Uri returned, as promised, to check on her, shortly after the war, she was already gone. 
In fact, Shkunat HaMugrabim itself had disappeared altogether. The IDF's engineering corps raised the entire neighborhood to make way for the large Kotel Plaza we all know today. They had no way of knowing what happened to the mother or the baby. They didn't even know their names. Uri, you'll recall, had suggested Jamila, but they didn't know that she'd later acquire a new, biblical name. Hulda? Hulda. Hulda Nevia. A female prophet from the time of Jeremiah. After Mordechai, the journalist, heard this entire saga from Yudit on the street in Jaffa, he couldn't get it out of his head. He was really excited. And it remained the topic of conversation in our house for weeks. He wrote it up in an article for Mariv. It was his biggest scoop. The scoop of a lifetime. Unsurprisingly, the story made national headlines. And Mordechai quickly arranged a meeting between the Schwarzes, Judith and Hulda, and Uri, the doctor. Now, the reunion was emotional and joyous, but it also had a practical purpose. You see, Hulda didn't have a birth certificate. And at the time, the law said that the only person who could sign your birth certificate was the delivering physician. Uri gladly signed the certificate. He might have even shed a tear. After all, his son Yaakov told me, He was a very emotional guy. Very, very emotional guy. Five-year-old Hulda claimed that she remembered Uri. From her own birth, that is. Everyone laughed and joked and played around. But a year and a half later, all that changed. It was Yom Kippur, 1973. Yom Kippur was real sacred for him. We were in the synagogue. During the Musaf prayer, they started to hear sirens and noticed army cars frantically driving up and down the street. Uri knew what this meant. He took his eight-year-old son by the hand and rushed back home. He told my mother to help him pack all his stuff. He broke the um, fasting, and my mother took him to uh, to the main road, Kvisharba, and he just hiked over to the south, and that's it. Uri never returned. On the very same day the ceasefire agreements came into effect, his helicopter was hit by an Egyptian missile near the Suez Canal. All 24 people on board were killed. In the years following Uri's death, the story of the Kotel birth died down. Middle-aged Judith was living in a small apartment in Bnebrak, working as a part-time nanny. Abi went back to his life on the kibbutz. I returned to the fields. I worked in the agriculture and cultivated crops. Danny, the medic, had seen enough. I left Israel in 1974, after the Yom Kippur War. He resettled in Sydney, Australia. And we're living here ever since. Ruti and Mordechai Elkan, the Mariv journalist and his wife, moved to the West Bank settlement of Sharei Tikva. In 2004, Mordechai tracked down Yudit 
and invited her to retell her story at a Jerusalem Day sing-along party, which took place exactly 37 years, to the day after the Kotel birth. Yudit, now 77, was wearing a black head covering and a long, dark dress. She spoke about the Holocaust, the journey to Palestine, the kibbutz moving to Jerusalem. This is from a video of that evening. I went to the Kotel. I was so intrigued to see the Kotel that everyone was always talking about, and everyone wanted to visit and pray at. So I went there. And that's where I was nabbed. So in 1948, you were caught by an Arab who didn't let you go back to Israel, someone asked? Yes, Yudit answered. Then, somewhat sheepishly, she recalled hearing the paratroopers arriving at the Kotel. After all, it was right outside her window. Suddenly I went into labor. I didn't know what to do. I told my husband to go out to them and say that I need to give birth. When Yudit was done answering questions, a young woman in a white skirt joined her. It was Hulda, the Kotel baby. It was her birthday. Someone brought out a cake and the entire crowd sang to her. This was the last time people involved with the story met up. Yudit died in 2009, and so did Mordechai, six years later. Everyone else just went on with their lives, and lost touch. Now, this was the story I heard from Abi. Hulda was the woman he was trying to find. If you find her, please, please, please let me know and connect us. We looked high and low. But she was nowhere to be found. We hired Maya Enoch, a relentless sleuth. So we tried old phone books, the Ministry of Interior, municipalities, even the Holocaust database at Yad Vashem. And even she couldn't track her down. Hulda, it seemed, had vanished without a trace. After months of searching, we went on national radio asking the public to help us locate her. Shalom, Ishi Harman. Shalom, Izzy, shalom. Veshalom, Maya Anoch. Hi. Anachnu im sipur kimat badashi, efshar lomar, nachon, Mishi? Legamre, legamre. Izzy Man, the radio host, called it a detective story. We recounted all the details we knew, mentioned all the characters, places, events. And the question that now has everyone curious, Easy summed up. Where are they? We got dozens and dozens of leads as a result of the broadcast. Most of them turned out to be dead ends. But then, one of Easy's researchers sent us a link to a lifestyle blog post about the wife of Bar hairstylist, a woman called Fanny Sabag. Might this be her? He wondered, citing a ton of circumstantial clues. I called Fanny up. Okay, here we go. This could be her. 
Hello, Fanny? Hi, Fanny. My name is Mishi Harmon, and I'm calling you because I think I've been looking for you for many, many months. Are you by any chance... <laughs> are you by any chance Hulda from the Kotel? Yes. Oh, oh my God, Fanny, you have no idea. I have tears in my eyes. Wow. <laughs> it's me, it's me. <laughs> Okay, I am in Pardes Chana, driving on my way to meet Fanny. Extremely excited, actually. I was excited not only because we had successfully played Sherlock Holmes and found her. It was because given all I now knew about Fanny's complicated heritage, I was really eager to see who she had become. Somehow I felt that the unusual circumstances of her birth endowed her with an enviable gift. Instead of viewing Israelis and Palestinians as warring enemies on different sides of a wall, She had a ladder. Maybe, I thought, with her unique blend of Hebron and Hungary, Fanny could somehow use that ladder of hers to climb up, sit atop the wall, and look around calmly at all sides. Shalom, Fanny. Shalom, shalom. We sat in her living room for hours during which she filled me in on all the details of the story. Shortly after the Six-Day War, she told me, her parents left the old city. By that time, her father, Ali, was diagnosed with leukemia. He died when she was 18 months old. And did your mother love him? No. No? No. As she spoke, I started to realize that Fanny grew up with a very clear, one-sided narrative about her past. You see, after Ali's death, Judith returned to Judaism and raised her three kids in Bnebrak, in a small public housing apartment she received from the government. I grew up in Hebrew. And then my mom, she talked with us only Hungar and, and uh, when she was nervous, she spoke Arab. Only when she was nervous. When she wanted to shout on us, she shouted in Arab. So she learned Hebrew ultimately? From us. For years, Judith had lived behind a border, behind a wall. And now that she had broken free of its confines, she put herself behind another one. One in which her complex history was simplified. She was a Jew, and she had always been a Jew. I tried to understand what Judith had told Fanny, how she had explained all these unlikely twists and turns that made up her biography. But it turned out that, just like many Holocaust survivors of that generation, Judith largely chose to remain silent. She was kidnapped by the Arabs. Did she tell you stories about that? What did she say? She didn't like to tell, <laughs> to talk about it. She didn't like to talk about it because she was suffering there. She suffered all, all her life. I feel so sorry that, that, you know, in the Holocaust and then with them. And then. 
שכל הזמן סופרת. היא חייבת חיים מאוד טובה, מהתחילה ועד הסוף. It must have been confusing for Fanny and her siblings to grow up with all these layers of shame and secrecy. I never said that my father was Arab. No, never. My father died, I don't know. Were you embarrassed to say? Embarrassed, sad, uh, angry, I don't know. I deny. I don't want to know that nothing about my father. Nothing. Her older brother Chaim was so ashamed of his Arab heritage that he changed his father's name on his ID card from Ali to Eli. You don't want that somebody know that his father was Arab or something like that. You don't want. Till this day, it turns out, that truth is so painful for both of them that they basically prefer to ignore it. We never talk about it because he hate Arabs like me. I hate the Arabs so much that I didn't want to know nothing about them. It was jarring to hear Fanny declare her deep disdain towards her father's people. It confused me, honestly. I guess she couldn't afford, at least not psychologically, to straddle the wall and embrace her compound identity. Instead, she had to pick sides. And as if all that wasn't mystifying enough, Fanny told me that towards the end of her mother's life, Samira, one of the two daughters from her first marriage, those who had been taken by their father to Amman, re-established contact. She was living in East Jerusalem, and she'd dress up as an Orthodox Jew and come to Bnebrak to help her mom. Every day she come from Jerusalem to, to, to see her mother. The day you did died, in 2009, was the last time the two half-sisters spoke. We're still looking for Samira. Before I left, I asked Fanny to close her eyes and imagine an alternative reality, one in which a young King Hussein decides to stay out of the war, and Jerusalem's old city remains Jordanian, one in which, in all likelihood, she would have grown up on the other side of the wall, as a Palestinian Muslim, rather than an Israeli Jew. I asked the question several times and in several different ways, but Fanny always had the exact same reply. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to think about it. April 9th, 2019 was election day in Israel. An entire nation held its breath to see whether an upstart general could unseat an incumbent king. And that very day, in Jerusalem's old city, next to a wall built by an Edomite ruler two millennia ago, a bunch of Israelis, folks who really couldn't be more different from each other, met up for a strange reunion. Some of them hadn't seen each other in decades. Others had never met before. But they were there because a single act of altruism, performed 52 years ago, forever tied their fates together. A.B., the no longer young officer from the paratroopers, came with his partner, Shuli, who first sang Jerusalem of Gold. Dr. Uri Fran's daughter, Racheli, showed up with her husband, Avi. And so did Ruti, the gracious widow of Mordechai el-Khan, 
who broke the story back in 1972. And then there was one excited, overwhelmed and dazed woman. A woman whose life began right here, at the Wailing Wall. Jamila. Hulda. Fanny. Oh yeah, and also in attendance was Guy, Fanny's 13-year-old son. The Israeli grandson of a Hungarian Holocaust survivor and a Palestinian from Hebron, who was seemingly oblivious to all the crazy forces of history that allowed him, on a gorgeous April day, to come to the Kotel, put in his earbuds, and listen in a never-ending loop to Ariana Grande pop songs. A.B. took us around and showed us where all the events of June 7th, 1967 took place. At the end of the tour, as if to exemplify the convoluted, intertwined DNA of this story, the Muazin from Al-Aqsa Mosque started calling believers to prayer. And as it did, I looked at Fanny, who seemed a bit detached from the rest of the group. It was as if she found herself at the center of a story which wasn't really hers. She was the belle of the ball, for sure. But somehow, she also managed to make herself almost invisible. Gazing off to the side, a permanent smile plastered on her face, she was clearly distracted. I couldn't really tell whether she was even happy to be there. Was it nostalgic for her? Or was it, rather, painful? Forcing her to confront an identity she's clearly decided to bury. I guess that in my mind, I had made her into a symbol. This Jewish-Arab baby, born at the Kotel, on the day of Jerusalem's reunification. But most people aren't symbols. Fanny definitely isn't. She's just a person, grappling with her past and constructing her own internal walls in order to live her life. Still, on the most divisive election day Israel has ever known, a West Bank settler, a former kibbutznik, a self-described Arab hater, a left-wing Tel Avivi, and many others who weren't there with us. Danny, the medic who left Israel and now lives in Australia. Uri, the doctor who was killed during the Yom Kippur War. Samira, the Palestinian half-sister we couldn't locate. And of course, Yudit, the Auschwitz survivor who spent 19 years in the shadow of this wall. All those people were somehow part of the same complicated story. One which isn't symbolic or metaphorical. It's just, well, life. Yes, Avanim, 
עם לב אדם. And that's it, our first episode of the season. You can hear all our previous episodes, three full seasons worth of them, on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, and reach a large and committed audience in 192 countries around the world, Email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. There are many folks who worked hard on this episode. Thanks first and foremost to Maya Enoch, who produced this story with me, tirelessly tracked down every possible lead, and in the process learned more about the Schwartz family than anyone alive. Including, that is, the Schwartz family itself. Maya also just got married 10 days ago to Chaim, so a big, big mazal tov, Maya and Chaim. We haven't given up hope of finding Samira, or her sister Aisha, who apparently lives in Abu Dhabi. So if you know either of them, or anyone who might help us reach them, let us know. Hopefully we'll be able to air an update later in the season. Thanks to our dubbers, Aleksansky, Liron Levi, and David and Dorothy Harmon. To Avi Shachar and Rachel Ifrand, Uri's daughter, who opened up their home and welcomed us into their family. To Iziman and his team of researchers, who helped us with all the mysteries of the story. To Rafi and Dani Shafman, Yotam Michael Yogev, Rana Fahum, Bayan Zoabi, Ora Rajevsky, Yael Neumann, Ahuva Rosenberg, Uri and Yael Rapaport, Dana Harmon, Itzik Sabag, Halel Eshed, Matan Vigoda, Julie Subrin, and all the countless people who've heard me go on and on about each and every detail of the search for the past year. All the original music throughout the episode was written, arranged, and performed by our wonderful Israel Story Band. Dotan Mushonov and Ari Wenig, together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Roni Wagner-Schmidt. It was mixed by our one and only Sela Weissblum, in what will be his last episode before becoming a dad. The Wall miniseries is based on our latest live show. Thanks to everyone who made our most recent North America tour possible, and especially to our JCC Manhattan family. Sheila Lambert, Megan Whitman, Rabbi Joy Levitt, Jordana Monzano-Sandler, Amanda Crater, Jeff Fontaine, Sam Brunswick, Philip Sandstorm, and Matt Temkin. To Pamela Lavitt, Amy Scherer, the University of Washington Hillel staff, Terry and Damian Green, Julie and Lyle Margolis, and Jane Becker and Jason Kinzer. And to our partners on the Upper East Side Coalition, Karine Lagziel, Rabbi Mo Salf, Rick Rosenbluth, Sean Fogarty, Central Synagogue, Park Avenue Synagogue, the 92nd Street Y, the UJA, and Jaffe. We're coming back to North America with The Wall in January 2020. So if you'd like us to come perform in your community, contact us at live at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Judah Kaufman, Hannah Barg, Ari Wenig, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. 
Scarlett Dejean, Paula Lem, Yair Farkas, Harry Sultan, Rebecca Carroll, and Anna Correa have been our wonderful production interns this year. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with The Wall, Part 2. There were about a hundred of us present that day. Hassan Mustafa was the symbol of courage. He walked down the hill by himself. We were all sure he was going to get shot. So till next time, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. Thank you.